Hi there and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Meryl Johnston. The Lifestyle Accountant Show exists to help today's accounting firm owners build successful firms while also living a healthy, happy life without sacrificing sleep, your weekends or time with loved ones. Today, I have producer Elle joining me. Hi, Elle. Hi, Meryl. How are you going? Doing well. I keep forgetting that your professional name is Eleanor, so I should actually, <laughs> as a friend, I call you Elle, but on the podcast, I keep forgetting. It's Eleanor Carey. <laughs> oh, please refer to me by my full name every single time. Thank you very much. No, no. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Oh, so how's, it, how's, how's your week been? Um, up and down. It's just really busy this week. So I've got... I. I've been trying not to have early morning starts and I actually have a 7am and a 6am webinar that I'm presenting on this week. So it's it's not ideal. It, it makes surfing or going to the gym difficult. And then it so happens that it's a week of appointments as well. GP, mm. um, dentist. They take so much time, don't yeah. they, those things? Like by the time you get there and then they're running behind and Mm-hmm. Oh God, I wish you could just outsource those to someone else. But unfortunately, yeah. when it's like the dentist, you can't really send someone in your place. And the thing I find, so pre-kids, you just fit it in and you'd go to an evening appointment, that kind of thing. But for me now, it, those kind of things either cut into my workday or they cut into exercise time. And it means that I can't go and do something outside. So it's a bit, bit challenging. I also went to the dentist recently and I did have the thought, I'm like, can I bring my, how old is he? Can I bring my eight months old son with me to the dentist? And I was like, mm, probably not. Cause I guess the two appointments I find most difficult because I've usually been able to bring him so far, uh, getting your eyebrows done because eyebrows, eyelashes, you have no eyes, can't see him. And then I guess dentist, you've got no mouth, can't talk to them. So I feel like they're two that <laughs> fall into the category of mm, can't really, can't really bring the, the baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I have joined your gym actually mm-hmm. in of recent times, but I haven't run into you there yet. How's your, how's your gymming and your yoga and going? Doesn't mean you're not going. I'm not accusing you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we go at different times. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to the gym a little bit. So I love spin classes. So I have been getting there a little bit, but this week particularly has not been great because of the other commitments, but I have been getting in a pretty good routine there. Yoga, not so much. I'm just finding it hard to fit into my day. And I mentioned doing family yoga, just having to do it with the kids, putting on YouTube and doing it. And it's, it's just getting worse with being climbed over, kicked in the face. Um, so, so I'm just, I'm not bothering with that, but I am doing some of my own stretches. And so the, the main purpose is mobility. And so even if I'm just doing some stretches on the mat in front of the TV at night, that's kind of helping to achieve the goal. But um, definitely not yoga, hitting the yoga every day uh, goal. <laughs> What do you mean getting kicked in the face doing yoga isn't isn't the vibe? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> my two-year-old actually loves it and so sees my yoga mat but then just wants to do it with me or just climb on top of me. So it's kind uh, of almost ends up falling into a, into a different category than your like health, fitness, mobility category, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you've recorded, you were a guest on another podcast this week, weren't you? How did that go? I quite enjoy that when it's someone else and and often they're asking interesting questions or things that I haven't thought about recently. And so then I feel inspired after the conversation. So this was a podcast with a guy called Matt who runs a marketing agency for accountants. And it was, he was asking some of my perspectives about marketing and and what I've done for Bean Ninjas. And we were talking about, well, how is, how has 
the industry changed. And so some of the strategies that I use almost 10 years ago now, if I was starting a firm today, I wouldn't use. Back in the the early days of Bean Ninjas, I was doing a lot of content writing and SEO. And, and so we were getting leads, people would find us on Google. And that is still one of our strategies now. But we've been in that game for a long time. We've got hundreds of articles and we've really invested a lot of time and energy in that strategy. But I think it's more of an established strategy these days. It's more expensive. And if I had a new firm without a big budget, I probably wouldn't be using an SEO strategy. You're competing against the big software companies, the big firms, and I'd be using more of a a social, so social media strategy for my digital strategy. So in both situations, I used in-person networking to drive the early leads, but I was trying to pair that with some kind of digital marketing strategy. And today I'd focus on one channel and really concentrate on that. So I think of social media as a rented platform. So you can get get booted off. So you can get, I know people that are two people that have been booted off LinkedIn. I know many people who've had Facebook. And is it, wait, is it it permanently booted off LinkedIn then? Or like, is it like, is it like a school suspension for like a few days or something? One was able to get her account reinstated with a lot of argument and possibly, I don't know if she knew someone who was able to help with that. And then the other, he never got his account back and had to start again. So, so note something I've been doing is downloading my contacts from LinkedIn every now and then, because it would be very annoying to try and um, start from scratch again and and not recall everybody that you were connected with. Yes. So it would be a, a devastating blow to to business to lose that, wouldn't it? It, it would. And so I think of those kind of platforms as rented. Um, they're, they're good platforms in that they, they give you extra reach. So if you are posting on LinkedIn or Twitter or TikTok, YouTube, they are helping you. They're helping to get you in front of their audience because their objective is to get their users to stay on the platform for longer. So if you're creating useful content or interesting or engaging content, they're going to help you. But that's the upside of the rented platforms, but but the downside is that you don't own it. And so then thinking about how can you get people off the rented platform onto something that you own, and that could be your website, uh, probably more so your email list. So how can you get them onto your website to then subscribe to your email list? But something like that where even if your email provider uh, it's really your list, even if you happen to use ConvertKit or one of the other tools. Even like, you know, writing on Substack or, or Beehive, even though you're still sort of using then their referral networks and things like that, you know, I'm still getting subscribers to my newsletter on Substack that I think I stopped writing two years ago. So it's still sort of just building up in the in the background. Who knows, might do something with that one day. But you can still download the entire list and then you're able to take that with you wherever you go. So I think that those are sort of that's a really beautiful like intermediate step, I think, between having them, it's fully on your own website versus still being able to have some like network reach effect from those those bigger platforms. And so if we wanted to go and listen to this deep dive, what podcast was this? It's the Marketing for Accounting Firms podcast. The episode isn't out yet, but potentially when we have the, by the time we have the show notes for this, it might be so we can link it up. Oh, well, we'll keep an ear out. And so speaking of what is coming up, who is the guest on our podcast today? Yeah, so we've got Brandon Poe on the podcast today. He's the founder of Poe Group Advisors, which are brokers in the accounting firm space. So he and his firm have worked on hundreds of deals helping accounting firm owners to sell. Uh, He also helps a little bit on the buy side. 
So we run, run through trends in the mergers and acquisition space for accounting firms. So what's happening in 2024? What's what's changed over the last couple of years and where are the opportunities? And then he also talks through a number of examples of deals that have gone wrong and what to look out for. So uh, the reluctant seller, how to handle a situation where there's multiple partners involved in the firm looking to sell, why you might want to let a deal collapse. There's a particular story about that. An employee from a seller side that almost caused a deal to collapse. So there's a, a few great stories there as well. You know, one of the things that, especially like in our accounting practice academy, one of the first things that we teach owners to do is oftentimes the first thing you have to do in order to really transform your business is you have to create capacity. You have to prune. So you have to you have to take away before you start to add. And that's very counterintuitive for a lot of owners, especially if you've built from scratch and you've scrapped along and you've valued every client and every dollar that you've ever brought on. But, you know, a private equity buyer, that's one of the first things they do. And, and usually with an owner, there's an emotional attachment to those clients. There's I would say most accountants are very service oriented. They're very caring about their client relationships. They really truly want to help everyone succeed. They just can't make those cuts. I mean, I've had I've had owners, you know, they're like, yeah, the, the buyer's going to have to do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't I can't go up on the fees. I can't I can't cut things that need to be cut. You know, they just there's an emotional attachment. Oh, that yeah, I do love, I love a good case study with all of the like nitty gritty details of what really happened. Um, I'm almost like getting into like true crime style, but with, um, with accounting firms. <laughs> <laughs> all right, here we go with Brandon Poe. Oh, rhyming. <laughs> <laughs> And now a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by TeamUp, helping you to recruit top Filipino accountants without the ongoing monthly fees. They can source with experience working at US or Australian firms who are familiar with tools like Xero, QBO and Dex. They can also recruit specialist roles like bookkeeping team leaders who have leadership experience and Australian tax specialists. I recently came on board as an investor and advisor to team up and I love their ethical approach to the offshoring industry where they look after both the accounting firm and the Filipino accountant. Make sure to check out the team up newsletter for more content on building top tier accounting teams in the Philippines. That's at hireteamup.com. H-I-R-E-T-E-A-M-U-P.com. Hey, Brennan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Meryl. Glad to be here. It's fun to be chatting. We actually had a conversation recently, but you were interviewing me on your podcast. And so now we're, we're turning the tables and it's my turn to interview you. Love it. Um, yeah, I'm ready and looking forward to it. Well, let's start. So you run Poe Advisors, which I would describe as a business broker, but I think you describe it in slightly different terms as a CPA intermediary. But why don't we start there? What, what does a CPA intermediary or a business broker in the accounting space, what what do they do? Well, we are true, truly in the middle of the deal. We find people who are ready to exit and we often coach them leading up to the sale. So, you know, they might come to me three, four, 10 years sometimes before they're ready to exit. And we'll have some conversations and, um, 
you know, try to help them position their firm for a sale. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. And then when they're ready, then we uh, create a package that goes out to potential buyers, a uh, very thorough package. So buyers can kind of from a 30,000 foot view, see what they're looking at, see if it might be a fit for them. We help the seller basically focus on the fit. Our, our big focus is is on fit. So if we can match a good buyer who has the proper experience, the right um, work experience, philosophy is aligned, that's something we look for, uh, and some other things. Uh, if we can match those up, those people up well, and it's truly a good fit, then um, it usually helps the seller get the most value from the practice. Uh, the buyer is getting something that is going to work for them, so they're getting value. We also you know, help with the negotiations of the deal. So we're kind of that buffer and we have a structure. So people are not just sort of uh, verbally negotiating deals because verbal negotiations, a lot of things can get misunderstood or, or just left out, just left out. And then uh, at the 11th hour, some things are discovered that weren't discussed and that can be problematic. So we have a structure uh, to help everyone come to a, a meeting of the minds, if you will, uh, get the document on paper, sign off on the deal, and then they conduct their due diligence. We also help with financing. So we work with lenders who specialize in accounting practice acquisition loans and help the you know the buyer get good financing if, if that's part of the deal. And then we also coach buyer and seller together on transition so that the handoff is planned and... Um, based on our experience. We've got a lot of experience uh, transitioning these deals. And so uh, we want to, you know, share that experience with our clients and that really helps the buyer. So we're truly helping both parties uh, through, you know, through this deal. So we, we like to call ourselves intermediaries, but we are known as brokers as well. But I think what our service is, is a little bit more involved than just you know, hey, you want to you want to put this try to put two people together and let them figure it out. We're we're much more hands on. Yeah, I can see why you use that term because when I think of a broker, I think of you acting for one party, so representing the interests of either the buyer or the seller. And it sounds like initially you're getting involved with the buyer, sorry, with with the seller to help them prepare their firm for sale and then matching them up at coaching both parties through that process of the deal making and then the, the transition. So where are you finding the the people that are, or the firms that are on the acquisition side? Do you have a pool of firms that regularly buy or, or how do you actually find those? Well, um, we make ourselves very findable. You know, we, <laughs> um, <laughs> we, uh, we do a lot in terms of marketing to put ourselves out there uh, we have a, have a lot of resources um, also. So what typically a buyer is going to do in their journey is they're going to look for listings for one thing. They're going to look at potential opportunities. They're also probably going to do some research. They're going to read some, you know, they're going to read or they might listen to a podcast about someone who's purchased before. So we have a lot of content that helps them kind of think through due diligence, think through fit. Again, it's it's choosing the right practice. We have a lot of content that kind of comes up at the top of the search engines when people are doing research. 
we also just been in the space for a long time. So we've been selling firms since 2003. So uh, there's a cumulative effect of just being in the market for a long period of time. People just hear about us. Sometimes it's word of mouth. Sometimes they see our paid advertising. You know, we just do, we do, I do speaking events. I do all sorts of things to kind of over time, that network just gets bigger and bigger and then it creates a gravity. Let's jump into that for a moment. So I will ask you about what you're seeing in the space in 2024 for mergers and acquisitions in accounting. But actually, I I am curious about your business itself and how you got started as a business broker and and what your firm looks like now. So maybe you could tell a little bit of that story. Well, I, um, (laughs) it's funny because I started, uh, by calling the wrong person. So I made a phone call. I made the the wrong phone call. And uh, <laughs> what happened was I was, um, I had been in public practice. I started my career at Ernst & Young. I left public practice and I was going to continuing professional ed with a friend who had purchased a firm. And this was in the neighboring town a couple of hours and uh, I was spending the night. And so we went out and we were shooting pool and having a couple of beers after the, after the uh, education event. And he said, yeah, you should call this guy. All he does is he sells CPA firms. And so I get home the next day and I can't remember the guy's name that my friend told me. And so I go on Google and I call this guy in Texas and his name was Howard Holmes. And he said, well, I'm, I don't have anybody selling firms in South Carolina do you want to sell CPA firms? And he was just getting started. And this was the company accounting practice sales, which is a a big uh, player here in the United States. Long story short, he ended up selling his company and I parted ways uh, with the new owner. That was a amicable split, but we split and I started Poe Group Advisors. Uh, So that's, that's how I got into it. (laughs) I like how you describe that as making the the wrong phone call. Yeah. and so what does Poe Group Advisors look like today in terms of team or maybe uh, number of deals done? So we have 20 people on our team right now. We just had our annual team meeting and we were all like surprised, like, wow, we got the 20. That's kind of that's kind of bigger than we could have imagined several years ago. Yeah, we're growing. Um, we cover we have buyers in all 50 states of the U.S., all uh, provinces of Canada. So that's our footprint. That's where we operate. We sell a lot of virtual firms. So we've taken the lead in the cloud sales space. And I don't know how many cloud firms we've sold to date, but it's it's a we have that broken out separately on our website. So people can just search cloud listings if they want to. Um, yeah, we're we've got we've got a rep now in Los Angeles. We've got someone based in Toronto in Canada, uh, Montreal. We have a rep in um we have one person who lives in British Columbia who works on our team. Um, and then a couple of us here in South Carolina, we were headquartered in Charleston and one rep in Louisiana and one in Kentucky. So we're, yeah. And are the reps, are they running their own deals? Is, is that what they do? Well, um, th- we have, we have sales reps and then we have brokers. So we have the, the sales reps are, sourcing deals and our brokers are the ones that are, uh, you know, doing the negotiation and, and doing most of the client uh, touch when someone decides to sell. Uh, 
We also have a virtual coaching program called Accounting Practice Academy that we launched in 2020. And uh, that's an eight-week program. So that's another offering that we have. So we're we're growing and branching out into different things. And um, yeah, it's it's been a fun ride. And we're, you know, I, I think we'll continue to grow. I think we've got quite a bit of room to, to keep growing. It's interesting talking about the Academy. We're actually just about to publish an episode on the podcast about opportunities in the education and community space for accounting firms. So it's interesting hearing you mention that as well. Well, let's get into some trends. You, you see a lot of deals go through in the CPA, the accounting firm space. So what are some of the things you're seeing at the moment in the market in 2024? Well, just in the last couple of years, we've definitely seen an increase in buyers in, from private equity. So we're seeing that and and it's a a little bit of a messy playing field there. I will I will be the first to admit, I think a lot of these private equity backed buyers are they don't they don't yet know what they're getting themselves into or potentially getting themselves into. I don't think they fully understand the space. That being said, some of the private equity firms do understand the space quite well and they've got some interesting strategies for rolling firms up and really kind of making them run more like a very professionalized company. You know, they're running them by the numbers. They're, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're bringing in their management expertise. That's very objective, very numbers based. And that I think is going to impact the industry. I think that's going to have possibly a really big impact. We'll see, we'll see how successful they are with their roll-ups. So what are some of the changes they're making in terms of how they're running the firm compared to traditionally how, how a firm's run? You know, one of the things that, one of the things that, especially like in our accounting practice academy, one of the first things that we teach owners to do is oftentimes the first thing you have to do in order to really transform your business is you have to create capacity. You have to prune. So you have to, you have to take away before you start to add. And that's very counterintuitive for a lot of owners, especially if you've built from scratch and you've, you know, you've scrapped along and you've valued every client and every dollar that you've ever brought on. And, but, you know, a private equity buyer, that's one of the first things they do. And, and usually with an owner, there's an emotional attachment to those clients. There's, I would say most accountants are very service oriented. They're very caring about their client relationships. They really truly want to help everyone succeed. And so they just can't make those cuts. I mean, I've had, I've had owners, you know, they're like, yeah, the, the buyer's going to have to do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't, I can't go up on the fees. I can't, I can't cut, I can't cut things that need to be cut. You know, they just, there's an emotional attachment and, a private equity buyer is going to be a very objective business owner and they're going to come in and, and they're going to stay a very, very much at arm's length with all of those aspects of the practice. So it, it, it's, you know, it's messy and it's, it might not be uh, as it's not soft and, and warm feeling, but it's <laughs> effective, you know. And is there a certain revenue threshold uh, or minimum level of revenue before they would get interested in a deal? Um, they're looking at everything right now. I, I think 
It's a very good question. And I think a lot of them don't know the answer, which is why I feel like it's a little bit messy out there right now. I personally think private equity probably shouldn't get involved unless the firm is at two and a half million, unless they already have a lot of other uh, practice ownership so that if they lose key, key people, they can shuffle the work around and get it done. That's the beauty of scale in an accounting practice. You don't get pulled back in as an owner if you're if you have enough scale, then a team member loss or you know a, a change will not pull the owner back into the weeds, which you know that firsthand because we talked yes, about that. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. And and I think I think like if five million is a really magic revenue number for an accounting practice, five million US. I think and that number is increasing as inflation hits, but but I think five million is a is a number where if you can get a practice to that point, then your scalability is just, it's just becomes easier and easier to mm-hmm. scale. And why is that? That's related to the people issue? It's the people issue. It's the people issue. Yes. Um, you've got enough managers or tax specialists or experts to, you can weather any, any personnel loss. And how are you seeing private equity structure those deals? So what kind of valuations are they pay or, or they're offering and uh, what kind of deal terms in terms of cash, all cash up front, spreading that out? What, what are you seeing? Well, they want to spread it out. They want to, <laughs> they, they want to make it all contingent. They want to put all the risk on the seller. They want to, you know, and, and um, that's the beauty of using somebody like us is, we can bring multiple parties to the table. So you've got a competitive environment, right? So a lot of private equity, uh, we have, we have uh, mixed results in the offers. We've gotten some really bad offers, but then we've also gotten some good offers. So you're going to see a mix of offers. So I think the best way to get, I'm a big believer in fixing the terms. If you're a seller, fix the terms because the buyer is ultimately going to be what determines client retention rates. The buyer is going to determine staff retention rates as well. So it's their actions, their decisions that impact that. So why should you as the owner, if you're relinquishing control, if you're then that's the big, that's the big part, right? If you're relinquishing control, why should your payout depend on someone else? So that, that's my philosophy. And I think it's a sound philosophy because what happens is it changes the behavior. The deal structure actually changes the behavior post-close. So if you've got a fixed price deal, okay, let's say you're selling your practice for all cash, right? The truth is about transition is you don't need a long transition to be an effective transition. So if the transition is pretty, pretty quick, it's a cash deal, the buyer is going to do everything they can to make sure everybody's happy, make sure that clients and staff are happy because it's their dime, right? If it's not their dime, it's, I'm sorry, it's just human nature. They're not going to give it the same attention. It's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So by a fixed deal, you mean uh, not having contingency if say clients leave over a period of time. Right. 
right. And there are now there are exceptions to that. There are there are valid reasons to have some contingencies in deals. I'd say about 10 to 15 percent of our deals do have a contingency in them. It usually uh, involves a large client. So there are a lot of practices that have uh, clients that have an outsized impact on the total revenue. Let's chat just a little bit more about what you're seeing in the space and then we'll move into some case studies. Outside of the private equity buyers, are there any other common themes you're seeing around who else is buying firms and what they're looking for? Well, I'm seeing a lot more of an entrepreneurial spirit coming into the accounting profession, which makes me smile because I think it's overdue that that this profession uh, really gets into thinking more like the clients that they serve. And I'm seeing a lot of the virtual firm owners in particular, the younger firms almost, they're almost, I don't, I don't know what the data would support, but I would say most of the younger buyers or the mo- younger people who are starting firms are starting virtual firms. And, um, you know, I'm just seeing, and, and that may be a function of the early adopters. You know, the, the people you see doing this are, are early adopters and they're, they're entrepreneurial by their very nature. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this holds true, you know, five, 10 years from now, but I'm seeing an influx of, of very entrepreneurial business-minded owners and a lot of them are scaling very rapidly. And I think they're providing better service than a lot of the traditional firms have been doing in terms of giving the client what they actually care about. Yes. Yes. Interesting. I, I still, I chat with my business partner, Wayne, about value to the client. And we still talk, are, are the clients even reading, we send monthly reports. Are they even reading them? We're trying to provide value in terms of accurate, timely financials for decision-making. And then if they're not reading the reports, are we actually providing value? So that, that's something that I'm thinking about and talking about with my business partner, but also other accountants. Is there anything you're seeing in terms of an, a group of aging accounts, so aging accounting firm owners that are look, looking to retire or exit in the you know in the next ten years? I feel like there's a trend there, but I'm, I don't have anything to back that up. I've been hearing about like the silver tsunami for for many many <laughs> years. Like like there's going to be these baby boomers and they retire. I just haven't seen like this giant wave yet, and. I've been waiting for this wave for, you know, I've been thinking, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe the pandemic's going to create a wave. Maybe this is going to, and I feel like people are working a little bit longer. There's certainly very high demand for our services, right? There's a shortage, uh, at least in North America, there's a pretty big shortage of accountants. There aren't as many people coming into the profession. So, you know, I, I think, Perhaps people are working a little bit longer. Um, maybe when they do sell, they're they're staying involved in the profession a little bit longer. Um, but I mean, the numbers are the numbers would support that there's going to be a wave sometime. Um, you know, maybe it's just a large swell and it doesn't. It, it's so gradual we don't feel it. Um, but yeah. All right, well, let's get into some of these stories. So the first one is 
have you ever sold a firm where the seller wasn't really motivated to sell? Absolutely. It happens, unfortunately, too often. Yeah, we had um, we had one. There's one in, one in particular comes to mind. It was a younger gentleman and he had a virtual firm and it had scaled pretty rapidly and he was feeling overworked and he was feeling burned out and he had a family and he literally was teary when he first did our kickoff meeting, our onboarding meeting. And you know, he was, he was actually teary, which in hindsight was kind of telling, right. That he was having a hard time <laughs> with the, the idea of selling. And um, yeah, it does happen. Uh, it happens more often than I would prefer that it did happen. And we, we try to, we try to really make sure people are ready. And there are a number of times when I'll have a conversation with a potential seller and I'll realize, Hey, I, I don't think you're ready. Like I kind of think you're just burned out. And if you could straighten these things out, you, you might continue to be happy with the practice. Um, I had one such story. I had, a, I had a, a, another younger, probably mid thirties owner. And he called and he said, ah, yeah, I got to get out of here. You know? And I said, well, you know, do you, do you enjoy what you do? He said, Oh yeah, I love my clients. and I love the work that I'm doing. And I'm like, well, when was the last time you had a really decent vacation where you weren't working? Like when was the last time you went with your family for like a week and you just didn't work at all? He goes, Oh, I think it's been years. I'm like, well, I think before you sell your practice, maybe just go take a vacation and kind of think things through a little bit when you get back. And so he actually did that. And he, um, he let go of some clients when he returned from his trip. He, he let go. I, I want to say it was like a hundred clients, like smaller firm, smaller clients. And uh, he's still in practice. So that was probably seven or eight years ago when I had that conversation with him. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. And I can imagine that if a seller thinks they want to sell, but maybe their heart's not really in it, then the deal could get right to the, the final stages and then pull, they'd pull out right at the end and, and waste everybody's time. So that makes sense that you're trying to assess that earlier on to see, well, are they do they actually want to sell or, or is it something that they're just burnt out? And, and can that problem be solved a different way? Yeah. Well, I've learned the hard way over the years that if they don't want to sell, they're not going to sell. And, <laughs> you know, there's going to be something that, it can be, you know, it could be some really tiny little thing that, that, um, and it's natural. I will say too, it's natural, even if you're ready to feel some of that, not, you know, some of those second guessing sort of thoughts. I think that's kind of normal in any situation. I imagine that that could happen if there's multiple partners in the firm too, where there might be a couple of partners that do want to sell, but there might be one that's, that doesn't want to who could really slow down the deal or come up with excuses. Have you ever had something like that happen where there was a one partner that didn't want it to go through? What was that like? All too often we've had that situation because you know, a lot of time that person is a little quiet in the beginning and they're, they're not speaking up that they don't really want to do this. But then when you get into negotiations, you just, there's a lot of resistance from that person. And there's a lot of 
like, you know, and then you get some passive aggressive behavior between the partners and we've seen all of those things. And we've seen some, we've seen some people hold up sales that it was, you know, it felt a little like, um, a, a payback, you know, like, like you have a junior partner, a senior partner really wants to exit, but maybe that junior partner felt overworked and underappreciated over the years. And suddenly there's some animosity between those two. And it, it appears at the point of the senior partner trying to exit. We have seen that. And we, again, we try to, we try to, you know, feel that out and see if that's there before we put something on the market um, and address it. Uh, but I, I think if you're in a partnership, if you're thinking about going into a partnership, that's a really important thing to think about in your, in your agreements, because if people are different age, they're not going to have the same exit time frame. So you have to know that going in and, and have some way to resolve that. I believe you've got a story about a husband and wife team that sold to a brother and sister team. Can you share that story? Yes, I do. And this was, this is kind of going back to someone who wasn't sure if they wanted to sell. Um, the husband was actually contacted me initially about selling, but he was really on the fence and he was, he admitted as much. And so I, I talked with them and I said, well, maybe, maybe getting into accounting practice Academy is good. And you can either think about, okay, here are the things that I think I need to do to fix the practice so that I can continue to work in it a little bit longer. Or you look at those things and you go, yeah, I don't really want to do that. I'm ready to exit. So I, I felt like that would give you the clarity. So they, they took me up on that. They, they got into the workshop they really implemented some of the ideas extremely well. And then uh, he, he went into that workshop in the summer. And then in December, I get a call and he says, yeah, we did all the things and it's great, but we do want to sell. So we, we put it on the market and uh, this is where the story kind of got a little crazy is it goes under contract in January. So it was only on the market for a month. And, uh, we went on the market for like 1.5 million. And, uh, then I get a call in March and he says, I think I want to let this deal collapse. So the buyer had, uh, missed a deadline in the purchase agreement. So the seller could get out of the agreement. So he said, I think we've, we've made all these changes. I think we're going to be up like four or $500,000 this year. And I don't think this is priced fairly. So we actually let that deal collapse and they put it back on the market, raised the price. And yeah, they ended up selling to a brother and sister whose dad had also been a firm owner. And it was just, it was one of the best transitions I've ever seen. Uh, it was three weeks, two, three weeks. And the, the buyer said, okay, we're, we're good with transition. And yeah, this was like $2 million practice and, and it was transitioned in three weeks, essentially. And then, and then they developed a really good relationship uh, with each other afterwards. And so, yeah, it's been good. Uh, that, 
Yeah, that's a nice, nice story. A good success story. All right, the next one, you listed a multi-franchise firm, but there was a snafu at the end. Uh, what were, were there any red flags that could have indicated that something was going to go wrong there? Well, you know, you talked about the part, the one partner who might not really want to do something. Well, I had one of those and I knew, I knew I had one of those. Like he had been difficult the entire time and they had 36 franchise stores. And I never forget, I had to create this practice profile and I personally did the profile back then. And I had to, you know, I had to put each franchise as one column and we had like to add it all up. It was a really complicated profile and uh, it was a, it was a really good performing business. Um, and yeah, we found another, you know, it was a franchise. So another franchisee put an offer in and they signed the deal. So this is how far it got. The deal got signed and then uh, they checked on something with the bank accounts with the franchise and the franchise would not facilitate a really quick transfer of those accounts. And the seller, all the seller would have had to do was let, let the buyer continue to use the existing accounts until they could get transferred over and the seller wouldn't do it. He killed the deal. And so they didn't put the, they didn't put the FedEx package in, in the FedEx box and the deal was dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and I had worked I had worked a lot number of hours on that deal and, and we we didn't get, you know, my team had worked on that and we didn't get a single penny for that deal. So that's the that's the downside. All right, I've got another one. What's the worst employee issue that you've seen come up in a deal? Yeah, we had a we had a seller in uh Calgary, Alberta. This was probably ten years ago. And he had sort of his right hand person and he trusted her and figured everything would be fine. And so our guidance, our general guidance is you don't tell anyone until you close. You don't tell your team until you close. Um, for one, they get nervous and they get uh, start to wonder. Sometimes they go and get their resumes they start applying for jobs and because they don't know what's going to happen so the uncertainty can really cause people to do things that you don't want them to do so anyway he insisted on telling her he felt like you know she's been with me for a long time i, I feel like i owe it i have this loyalty so he tells her and um it's like a week before closing and um he lets her know that he hasn't closed the deal and so she just, I mean, she really put up a stink and told all the other employees and they, you know, they basically came into his office as a group and confronted him and were all upset and threatened to leave. And, um, yeah, his wife said, she said, I, I thought he was going to have a heart attack. He was just so stressed out. But the deal did close. And uh, I don't know whatever happened with that employee. Like, I don't know how long she stayed with the new firm. But, um, you know, she she sensed that she had a lot of responsibility in that firm. And I guess she felt empowered that she could, you know, put the deal to, to bed. And 
she was going to do that. So do you think she was trying to ruin the deal by, by telling everybody? Was Yeah, I think she, yeah, she, I don't know if she thought she was going to be the one to take over the practice. You know, I, I see that a lot. Like, like you might have a key person and, and the seller is sometimes contrib- a contributing factor to this scenario is where over the years they might have dangled the carrot to someone and let them think they were going to have the first right of refusal or that they were going to get some really, you know, inside deal. And then they learn that they don't have that option in the seller. Uh, so, so people can get upset. And that's something buyers should, should be careful about too, is, you know, have the, has the seller had discussions with employees about taking over? And if so, you know, why didn't they buy it? I think a lot of people, a lot of employees don't want to be an owner. And and if if you have that situation, you really don't have a problem. But if you have an employee that wants to be an owner and then they're not the owner, then you might have some bad feelings. Yes, I can imagine. Um, next one is what's the smoothest deal you've seen? Yeah, that was that was um a deal that happened about a year and a half ago and our I didn't actually work the deal, uh, but, you know, I was watching it as it went through and it was, um, you know, it was just one of the best cultural fits that I've seen. And the, the leadership team from the uh, selling firm sort of went into um, the new firm and they weren't, they weren't planning on doing that, but, um, they were just happy with the, the role. They kind of, the, the role that this, the buyer offered them was attractive. It gave them that lifestyle uh, that they were looking for and took enough responsibility off of them and gave them enough money. And they were, they were happy with all of those aspects of the deal. So, um, and then the two teams came together uh, and they were just, they were just, you know, culturally a really good fit. And that's not always easy to accomplish with a a fairly larger firm. I mean, I think you had like a 50 person firm purchase a 25 or so person firm. And, um, you know, for them to, to really integrate well was, uh, yeah, that's, I think there was some luck involved in that. So. And what's the most frustrating part of deal-making? I think the most frustrating part is, is when negotiations create surprises that that seem like someone's doing that surprise sort of intentionally. Like there was, you start to question the integrity of the other party. You know, we had, I'll give you a story of a deal that just collapsed recently on our team. And the seller, um, accepted the offer in the form of a letter of intent. And we advise go to a purchase agreement immediately or even skip the letter of intent entirely. I really don't like letters of intent. And most lawyers will advise clients to, to use a LOI. We, we have seen too many instances where the LOI either creates false, you know, false uh, assumptions because it, it might be silent on things. We had this buyer, this deal was under LOI and the seller was so trusting of the buyer that he let 
the buyer talked to some key employees right before the deal was supposed to close. And after that, and everything was fine. The due diligence was apparently complete when that happened. And then um, he came back and said, yeah, I'm only going to offer you literally 50% of what was on the LOI. Ah, boy. After all of that. And so that's why we go, we like to see a purchase where we like to see something a little more uh, binding, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, and I have seen people and it's probably, it could just be a negotiating tactic, you know, mm-hmm. to where they're just trying to get a, a couple of bucks off the price right there at the mm-hmm. end, right before the closing table. So you think that was the strategy because once he, once the buyer had talked with the employees, then it becomes more difficult for the seller to back out of the sale because exactly. then there's a problem. Exactly. That's leverage, right? And mm-hmm. and it's human nature. It is just, uh, you, you know, and these people, these, oh, they were just, they, they fell in love. You know, the buyer and seller met and, and, and fell in love and everything was fine until it wasn't, you know. And, mm-hmm. um, and the other part of that, I think sometimes, uh, sometimes lawyers can make the purchase agreement and the lawyers, if, especially in the U S I think, I think in the U S the legal environment is, is a particular, uh, fun place to do legal work. Um, so there's a, there is, um, definitely an incentive for the lawyers to make the process more complicated than it might otherwise be. And so if you don't put some kind of boundaries on that process, you can end up with some really complicated deals, some difficult negotiations. There's a saying in our business, like lawyers are either deal makers or deal breakers. And it's very true. It's very true. And if you've got a deal breaker, they can not only break the deal, but they can really run up a lot of fees in the process. Um, I had, I had a seller years ago that had uh, about a million dollar practice and I knew what the lawyer was, his lawyer was doing. And he had a $75,000 legal fee at the end of the deal. (laughs) And it closed, it closed, but I mean, it was just, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I can see if you, if they're billing by the hour, then there's an incentive to bill lots of hours. And, and the more hours they're working on it, the more complicated it becomes. Mm -hmm. So if it's more complicated, it's less, it's less likely to close. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) <laughs> have you seen any other you were talking about it sounded a bit like a dirty negotiating tactic in that last example you mentioned have you seen any other tactics like that 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 sellers should watch out for well i think the other tactic and, and this is a, a, a another thing about human nature is if you put an earn out in a deal i did a paper on uh it's it's on our blog um reasons to avoid an earn out and I did research. This is paper was written a while back. It was published by the ASCPA and something like over half of deals that have a contingency, there is a fight over that contingency. Now, not might not be a legal fight, but uh, they're often, they're often not a meeting of the minds on how that calculation should work or who's responsible for what loss. So, Earnouts can really change behavior. I've seen buyers come in with an earnout and um, not service the clients as well as they should, and they lose clients or they price them out knowing they 
kind of they're kind of discarding the clients. They're cherry picking, if you will. And so the seller ends up being the the one who gets left holding the bag in that situation. Well, fantastic. Brandon, I know you've got some resources that are helpful for buyers, for sellers. Did you want to mention one of those and where the listeners could go to find it? And then we'll link up the others in the show notes. Yeah, I've got a couple of resources. Um, If you're thinking about selling, we've got a book, uh, How to Prepare Your CPA Practice for Sale. If you are a buyer and you're wanting to scale a practice, particularly a cloud firm, we've got a book about scaling your cloud accounting practice. And if you just want to take a vacation without checking email, we have a book about taking unplugged vacations, which, um, and all these books are fairly short reads and they're free downloads on our website and they can all be found on our resources hub. Well, that last one definitely fits with the theme of this podcast, the Lifestyle Accounted Show. We're definitely encouraging people to take vacations and work less hours. Well, Brennan, thanks so much for dropping by. It's been really fun talking about mergers, acquisitions in the accounting space. Was there anything else you wanted to add on the, on the topic before we wrap up? Not that I can think of. Those are great questions, Meryl. This was a lot of fun and uh, I hope, hope everybody got a little nugget here or there from it. So thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun having a chat with Braddon today. I didn't know that private equity was so interested in acquiring accounting firms and particularly how the minimum annual revenue threshold seems to be dropping over time. And Brandon was talking about the way that private equity thinks about accounting firms and where they see opportunities and how they're metrics driven. Uh, It can be quite different from how a typical accounting firm owner is operating their firm. And I think there's something that we can learn from them. Brandon talked about why $5 million in annual revenue is the magic number for an accounting firm. Again, something that I hadn't thought about But in hindsight, it it makes sense that when you get to that kind of scale, when you have people issues or a key person leaves, which is one of the main challenges in running a service business like an accounting firm, you can weather that storm much more easily when you're at that kind of scale than if you've got only one manager and then they leave, that's going to have much more of an impact. I also loved hearing the war stories from Brandon, uh, particularly about some of those deals collapsing and the way that experienced buyers can try and manipulate the sales process. And a few things he mentioned to look out for, I try to avoid LOIs, so letters of intent, and go straight to deal terms. And also uh, being mindful of how you work with lawyers because they can make a deal, but they can also ruin a deal. And check out the show notes if you'd like to connect with Brandon. And we've also linked in a couple of the resources that he mentioned on the podcast as well. See you next week. See you next week. See you next week.